0: Welcome to the Betsy Betsy Boss Boss Podcast. Podcast.
1: Welcome back. We are here with an update on last week's topic. But before we get into things, let's discuss a little piece of liberty that's been interesting to all of us. Just recently, a court reinstated Adnan Syed's murder conviction in the serial case and ordered a new hearing. So this is really exciting and interesting. We've talked about this a while ago when Adnan Syed's murder conviction um, was overturned. And we were very excited about that. And that was an interesting development. Yes. And so now the appellate court in Maryland ruled that the lower court, the court that made the Determination most frequently that we last talked about had actually violated the right of the victim, Haman hey Lee's brother, to have been notified of and to attend the hearing. So, in other words, Haman hey Lee's brother should have been allowed to attend this hearing, the ad non hearing, and he wasn't. He wasn't notified, he wasn't able to attend, and because of that, we're Overturning the conviction.
0: Yeah, because I, I remember actually during the hearing they delayed it a bit, at least like I, I don't know a couple hours or, or something like that to allow Hayes' brother to testify. I believe via Zoom, um, but I think he was only notified like either that day or the day before. So clearly wasn't, not
1: given enough time.
0: Yeah, not to prepare, not to like you know get ready for the whole thing. So that makes sense, but yeah, it's still p- pretty surprising very
1: surprising. And this is a guy, just to refresh everybody's memory, who was freed last year after he had spent 23 years fighting charges that he had killed his former high school girlfriend, Heyman Lee.
0: 23 and Heyman Lee. 23 and (laughs) Heyman
1: Lee. And now because of this rights violation of Young Lee, we're going to have to redo this hearing so that young Lee can attend and so that he can sit in and be part of things. So we're, we're back, we're back again. And we'll be seeing I guess how everything turns out once young Lee can participate appropriately.
0: Yeah, very interesting to see
1: where it'll go. Super interesting. And just to clear things up, the decision does not mean that Adnan, who's now 41 years old, must immediately return to prison because the appeals court issued a 60-day stay, and a stay is just like a pause of the proceedings, of the ruling to give both sides time to consider its next steps. So luckily, there's going to be a little bit of time. Adnan doesn't just get locked up in the clink again. There's a little bit of time for each side to think, all right, let's strategize. What do we do now in light of this proceeding? And where do we go from here?
0: Yeah, we'll definitely keep you updated, though, because this is a case that we, like we said, have been following and are definitely interested in. And I think I was not expecting this. Like I thought, all right, regardless of where you fell kind of on the case, it was kind of done. So, I was surprised to see that there's still developments, people are still kind of fighting it. So, we'll see where it goes.
1: Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. So, in light of that and in the same vein of the true crime Ride that we've been on last week when we started talking about the Idaho murders that took place in Moscow at the University of Idaho, we left off last time on November thirteenth, twenty twenty-two, um, and that was when a nine-one-one call was placed at eleven fifty-eight a.m. So we're almost at noon here. And the police and first responders were dispatched at this point to the house on 1122 King Road. You remember that weird date Uh, coincidence. I know. That
0: address is going to, like, go down in infamy, too. Oh, it's
1: so creepy. 1122 was the month and year that the murders happened. 1122 was the address where the murder happened. And anyway, so the police and the first responders got dispatched to the house And they had responded to this report of an unconscious person. And again, last we talked about this, it's kind of standard questioning for a 911 dispatcher to ask, hey, is the person conscious? Right. Are they responding? Yeah, are they responsive? What's going on? And we think what probably happened was that the caller was so delirious or just was answering the question straight up and said, no, the person is not conscious. So that's how we get this call about an unconscious person when really it's this massive murder. Right. And so this episode is going to include all different kinds of information, just like last episode. And again, we're going to try really hard to call that out when the information hasn't been confirmed by law enforcement and when it has, just so you can get the idea of where things came from, what's been corroborated, what hasn't, what's just conjecture, and what is solid fact at this point.
0: Yeah, and I will say, like, the stuff that we're, the facts, or I I shouldn't call them facts, but the info that we're including here that is uncorroborated, um, it still is kind of, like, widely speculated. So, again, that can definitely be wrong, too, but um, it's not just kind of something that is out there that, like, oh, one person said, found it randomly on a site or whatever. Like, these are kind of rumors or statements that a lot of people have, have said or at least vouched for themselves, I should say, too. Right.
1: And if we talk about the 911 call specifically, we did mention last episode that the call was made from one of the surviving roommates' phones, but multiple different people spoke to the 911 dispatcher. And this also implies that the roommates might not have been the ones to speak to 911. And this all goes back to the theory that surrounds the quote unquote unconscious person reported on the 911 call. It's very possible that the roommates could have been impaired or hysterical, that they couldn't talk to 911, but that other folks on the scene who were observing from the outside took the phone and relayed the details.
0: So we will get back to the theories. I know we alluded to that on kind of the roommates, and it's definitely still a lot of questions around the surviving roommates and what kind of happened in that time period after 4 a.m., But before getting into that, we want to describe the crime scene a little bit more because at least that'll help kind of lay things out. Um, So by many people who were there at the crime scene or have been in the house, it has been described as extremely horrific and brutal. So I think we kind of laid this out last time, the order of events, but just kind of to recap, um, we mentioned that the police believe that the sliding glass door, and again, this house is... Kind of unique how it's laid out. We have put photos up on Instagram. So if you want to take a look at the map. um, But police believe that the murderer entered on the second floor. Entered and exited um, through the sliding glass door on the second floor. And based on portions of the affidavit and the timeline. It's noted that by the surviving roommate DM. And again we are going to use initials. That During the night, the killer entered the second floor, walked through the kitchen, and swung a hard right to stairs up to the the third floor. Maddie, Kaylee, and Kaylee's dog, Murphy, were on the third floor. And at least as of the time the police arrived the next day, Murphy was still in Kaylee's room, so kind of separate from the whole situation. Thank God. Oh, my God. The poor thing, little puppy. Um, So we don't have many details that have come out about the crime scene. But, again, we're going to go back to the affidavit, and um, here's kind of some details that we get about the third-floor crime scene on 1113.
1: Okay. Um, It says, I then followed OFC Smith upstairs to the third floor of the residence. The third floor consisted of two bedrooms and one bathroom. The bedroom on the west side of the floor was later determined to be Kaylee Gonzalez. I later learned from review of Officer Nunez's body camera that there was a dog in the room when police officers initially responded. The dog belonged to Gonzalez and her ex-boyfriend, Jack Ducur. I found out from my interview with Jack Ducur on November 13, 2022, that Gonzalez and he shared the dog. OFC Smith then pointed out a small bathroom on the east side of the third floor. This bathroom shared a wall with Madison Mogan's, hereafter Mogan, bathroom, which was situated on the southeast corner of the third floor. As I entered this bedroom, I could see two females in the single bed in the room. Both Gonzalez and Mogan were deceased with visible stab wounds. I also later noticed what appeared to be a tan leather knife sheath laying on the bed next to Mogan's right side when viewed from the door. The sheath was later processed and had, quote, K-Bar, USMC, and the United States Marine Corps Eagle Globe and Anchor insignia stamped on the outside of it. The Idaho State Lab later located a single source of male DNA, suspect profile, left on the button snap of the knife sheath. Which is like so, just like textbook true crime, like dun dun dun, and like leave all of the information right there for the finding. Which,
0: as we get into it, makes you, if you really want to go down a rabbit hole, second guess like intentional, not intentional setup. Like, is he trying to be found? Yeah, the perpetrator, or was somebody setting him up? And like, or was he trying to make it look like a setup? Like.
1: Yeah, like there's so many ways you could kind of unpack
0: this. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of, there is a lot to unpack here, especially this lovely knife sheath. Um, And we will come back to it. But just to kind of give you a little bit more details, and again, these are not from the affidavit, but other sources. Kaylee's family has stated that Kaylee's injuries were much more severe and extensive than Maddie's. And initially, this led a lot of people to kind of believe one thing about... Um, you know, Kaylee being the target, and that's why her wounds were so much more severe. But I think my belief and kind of after watching this case unfold, I think it's more likely that Maddie was probably the target. And I think especially so because Kaylee, like we had said last episode, had already moved out. And this was kind of an unexpected or, you know, just one-off weekend that she was there packing up, celebrating before graduating early. And it's always a possibility that the killer carried out the murders that weekend when Kaylee was there intentionally, but I still think that Maddie was likely the target. Um, We'll also, again, get into this further with details that support Maddie being the target. But I think, so again, a lot of people think uh, Kaylee's wounds were so much more extensive. She must've been the target, but I think it also could be that, that Maddie was actually the first target. So If you think about it, the first target in the house, you come in, everybody's asleep or at least close to being asleep, intoxicated. He goes after the first person. They're so stunned, trying to even like wake up and figure out what is going on. They're probably not going to have as many defensive wounds. The other person in the bed who's not being attacked has more time to kind of come to, realize what's going on, seeing their friend get attacked. And then when the person comes over to them, starts attacking them they've got much more, you know, awareness, wherewithal, whatever, and are able to kind of fight back, which to me makes sense as to why Kaylee would have more defensive wounds. But again, just a theory. I think the police have their own theory and kind of have an idea of who the target was. But none of that has been released to the public.
1: Yeah. And you did a great job explaining this to me because... I didn't have any idea why somebody would have more defensive wounds if they were woken up second, but this makes total sense. If one person gets woken up first and, you know, is woken up out of a dead sleep, not to, you know, dead sleep, um, pun not intended, but you're going to have next to no defensive wounds because you're just stabbed and done. And that person is pretty much a sitting duck. But the next victim, ooh, they're going to fight back because they're going to be woken up by all of the madness going on right next to them. Yep. So it makes a lot of sense with this theory that Maddie was the first to go. So back to the order of events here. The killer, we think, descended the stairs from the third floor, passing by DM's bedroom door. And again, this is after the killing of Maddie and Kaylee. And there's lots of speculation on whether the killer intentionally went down to Zana's room, which again was on the second floor, or if he encountered her on the second floor and then needed to sort of kill her because Witness. now he's been seen, yeah. he's got to get rid of her. Um, it's, we don't know which way this went. And the following is from an affidavit, and we will discuss these possibilities after we read through. Officer Smith and I entered the King Road residence through the bottom floor door on the north side of the building. Officer Smith and I then walked upstairs to the second floor. Officer Smith directed me down the hallway to the west bedroom on the second floor, which I later learned through Zana's driver's license and other personal belongings found in the room was Zana Kernodal's, and we'll call her Kernodal here and after. Just before this room, there was a bathroom door on the south wall of the hallway, As I approached the room, I could see a body, later identified as Kernodal's, laying on the floor. Kernodal was deceased with wounds, which appeared to have been caused by an edged weapon. Also in the room was a male, later identified as Ethan Chapin. Here and after, we're going to call him Chapin. Chapin was also deceased, with wounds later determined. The autopsy report provided by Spokane County Medical Examiner dated December fifteenth, 2022,
0: To be caused by sharp force injuries. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting the different descriptions. But I think there's probably nuances there that we just may not realize from a layperson's perspective. But it all kind of leads you to conclude that it's probably one assailant and probably one weapon used on all of these victims. We do want to remember just from last time that Zanna had ordered DoorDash and the delivery came around 4 a.m. So we also know from the affidavit and her phone activity that she was on TikTok, presumably still awake at 4.12 a.m. Just a reminder, the murders were believed to have occurred between 4 and 4.25 a.m., which Again, this just creeps me out that she was still alive, still, like, on TikTok at 4.12 a.m.
1: Well, and that only gives the killer 13 minutes between 4.12 a.m. when she was on TikTok and 4.25 a.m. when the kills were completed for
0: him to kill Xana. I gotta be honest, though. I think a lot of people point to this, but in the moment, and if you, like, I've watched court cases where to kind of make the effect... Um, the attorney has, and it's very morbid, but let's say a person was stabbed 20 times. They would go one, two, three, four, five. Like, I think it can happen much more quickly than you would assume. I think in this type of situation, you would think, oh, they probably were there for two hours. But I think with the adrenaline and also just kind of wanting to minimize, like, their possibility of being reported, recognized, whatever, whatever they were going to do was going to be carried out very quickly. So it kind of doesn't surprise me that it was so quick. Um, I think it's hard to kind of tell like from our belief, but I think in the moment it actually is much quicker and and a much shorter timeframe that you would need to actually complete these crimes. So again, I believe that he likely targeted Maddie And he probably did not expect Kaylee to be there. But he felt obviously that he had to kill her as well because he went into the room expecting, again, this was Maddie's room, expecting to just find her there. He found her, then Kaylee, eliminated witnesses, had to kill both of them. And then I think he expected to just come downstairs, slip out the door again through the sliding door that he came in. And just given the time frame and kind of what was going on, I think – Zana was probably up and where her bedroom was situated. Um, it seemed like the sliding door was also like their main entry point on the second door. So ordering DoorDash, maybe coming back to get a plate or like throw her food away or something. She probably came out, encountered him. And unfortunately, that kind of sealed her fate. Ugh. And we have to remember that based on DM's uh, statements in the affidavit, she said that she thought she heard somebody say someone's here. She thought it was either – she thought it was possibly Kaylee, but um, officers said that they believed based on kind of timing and everything that it was probably Zana that said it, and I think that would make a little bit more sense with her hearing it as well. Um, I think that the killer – then followed you know after she said someone's here encountered him he followed her back to the room as she retreated there and at that point dm then heard a, a male voice say don't worry i'll help you which is so eerie like probably so creepy following her and trying to like calm her down as he's about to attack her and her boyfriend and it's possible that when he got there he saw ethan um probably still asleep or at least in the bed and Ethan was a taller guy. He was over six feet. So I'm sure the killer saw him as kind of the first one to take down, went after him, and then unfortunately went after Zana second.
1: Ugh, it's such a shame and so scary to think about it in the order of events like that and what happened to make certain people susceptible. And
0: and just the other roommates like being there, regardless of like what the other details were, which was going on, like what was going on.
1: Yeah, they must be traumatized. Like, I
0: just could not imagine thinking, oh, I'm in my room. And then, like, oh, my God, I can't imagine what happened down the hall. And I had, you know, no idea or I avoided it or whatever. Like, being in that same house. Ugh, Scary. Creepy. So there is
1: additional evidence to consider when it comes to Zanna and Ethan's murders. Zana's father came out and said that she had extensive defensive wounds. And again, this could go to the fact that she was a little bit more awake when she was attacked, or maybe she was attacked after Ethan, depending on whether she had gone out to get her food or a plate or whatever, or if she just heard someone. Regardless, if she was more awake, then it makes more sense that she had these extensive defensive wounds. Exactly. And if Ethan was asleep and attacked, not to mention drunk, which he most likely was, it would be easy for a killer to overtake him, even though Ethan was a tall, broad guy. And we talked about this last episode. The neighbor's camera actually picked up audio at 4.17 a.m. of whimpering, followed by a loud thud, and then finally a dog barking. Which, of course, was little Murph. If the murders occurred between 4 a.m. and 425 a.m., as we presume, and DM said she heard what she thought was Kaylee playing with her dog upstairs closer to 4 a.m., reason says that Zanna and Ethan were killed second. So this is making a lot of sense, helping us piece together the puzzle of who came first, who came second. And another piece of evidence that still isn't confirmed at this point is a widely circulated picture of what appears to be blood seeping down the outside of the foundation outside of Zana's bedroom.
0: I don't know if you've seen this. This is so it was one of the first pictures that came out. And one, it's it's a testimony, not to joke, but like a testimony to the poor construction in a college town. Yes. Like like apartment or like home. But it just was so freaking creepy. Like, oh. Yeah,
1: it's like haunted house level. Yeah. It looks like it can't even be real because it looks ridiculously disgusting and horrifying. And this was allegedly where the bed was potentially positioned. And we know this from photos of Zanna trying to sell her bed earlier that year. And the headboard would have been against that wall. So it's the belief that the room was so bloody that the blood seeped through the foundation of the house to the outside and was dripping.
0: Yeah, and again, to just kind of like tie it all together with the mattress um, and just kind of the belief that if Ethan were in bed and the killer came back into the room, attacked him in the bed, it would kind of account for the bloodstains on the mattress. And then with the headboard being against the outer wall of the home would also make sense, I mean, it, it kind of has been stated by everybody that the scene was very bloody to begin with, um, but it would make sense why you had that like horrific blood dripping outside of the house if Ethan's body was positioned right up against that out, outer wall of the house.
1: Yuck. Um, there's also pictures of law enforcement taking the mattresses from the house, and the mattresses were placed in protective bags and put in the back of a truck. The bags were white and very easy to see through, and a photo was taken of these mattresses getting taken away in the bags that appears to show a bloody body stain on the mattress, which is just sickening. And this is speculated to have been from Ethan's attack while he was still sleeping in bed. And taken all together, all this information, it seems possible, if not plausible, that Ethan was killed in Zanna's bed and that she was then killed after him.
0: Yeah. And I I mean, I think the police and law enforcement have done a, a pretty good job there on the whole, you know, scene and kind of processing everything. But I think there is some oversight with how much media I don't think they expected how much. The media would kind of descend on this and like every little thing I feel like they needed to have two or three levels of people like double checking it because I I just think the the bags or whatever that the mattresses were taken out on was just kind of an oversight and just a clear easy opportunity for uh, people there to take pictures and kind of speculate like if they had gotten black covers you wouldn't have been able to see through it and kind of speculate on the blood staining so just small details, like the media is all over it. So really got a second, second and third check that. So one of the biggest questions in this case, and we kind of got started to get into it in the last episode, was why didn't the killer murder the other roommates? Just to give kind of a high-level overview of the possibilities for why the roommates survived, there's a couple different scenarios. The first and I'm not sure how much I believe this, is that the killer didn't know the other roommates were there. I think it's possible, um, but I don't know. Just kind of how the house was, what it was known for, and where DM's bedroom and kind of her testimony, at least that we know of, about her opening the door just makes it a little hard to believe. Uh, the second one is that the killer, and I I do kind of believe this, did not plan to kill Zana and Ethan to begin with, but obviously, like we said, he encountered Zana and felt that he couldn't leave witnesses, so he kind of had to increase the victims by killing the other two roommates. But after that, he didn't want to increase the number of victims any more than he had to, so even if he knew the other roommates were there, or even if he saw DM, he just kind of wanted to get out of the house before having to kill anyone else.
1: This kind of makes the most sense to me. I think so, too. Uh, I think this is kind of the best theory, because it does seem like he did head straight up to the third floor yeah like if anybody was targeted it would have been maddie mogan who lived on the third floor who was known to live on the third floor that he found kaylee up there with her and so had to kill her too because she was a witness and then came down the stairs and with the timing Zana would have been getting her food delivery right then so she was probably around saw him and he was forced to kill her and her boyfriend
0: Yeah, it just it it aligns too much. And like we said, kind of the time frame is very tight. So I think based on at least DM statements in there, what she was hearing upstairs and then kind of the statements about somebody's here and, you know, don't worry, I'll help you kind of when those happened. And then also the video outside from the neighbors. It all does seem that those were the order of events. The third possibility, too, for why he didn't go after the other two roommates is that he was tired. But it, it it does make sense in a way, though, that, because stabbing is extremely up close, personal and physically exhausting, obviously. So it could just have been that he didn't expect, you know, how exhausting it would be. He didn't know that he would run out of steam after going after the uh, second pair of victims. And at that point, he was just like, I got to get out of here. So so I agree with you, though. I think the the second option is probably what happened but I wouldn't be surprised if some of the other scenarios came in came into play as well. So going on to kind of the next part of this whole scenario surrounding the roommates, the surviving roommates, why did they survive? Why didn't they call? Let's get into the delay in calling 911. And I think this even more so than kind of like why did they survive is why did it take them eight hours essentially to finally call nine one one, especially when one of the roommates said that she had, had seen the perpetrator exiting, like literally walked right past her.
1: Yeah, like what's the hold up?
0: Yeah. Come on now.
1: No sense of urgency.
0: So now that we have a better understanding though of the crime scene layout, let's go back to the details surrounding the surviving roommates and the nine one one call aftermath. As a reminder, again, DM encountered the killer around four AM and 911 was not called until 1158 a.m. So like we said, about eight hours, which is insane. So details have come out and they've even somewhat been confirmed by law enforcement that the roommates had friends come over the morning. Not sure if the roommates called them that morning or if the friends had kind of pre-planned to come over. But regardless, the friends had arrived before the roommates or anybody had even called 911, which I think is a major red flag and a major, I don't know, major question.
1: Yeah, it makes you look at this twice for sure. I mean... If not
0: three times. (laughs) Exactly.
1: (laughs) Ed, I mean, just think about this. If you had heard somebody... Even if you didn't see any of the evidence of this horrific murder taking place, which is unlikely because blood was seeping through the walls of the exterior of the house, how could you ignore this for eight hours and then invite friends over that morning? Like, my God, what took you so long?
0: Yeah, like, I think, I don't know, and this is a generation even younger than us. Like, I think our generation was taught... Instinctually, like nine one one, yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) And I remember when cell phones came out, we were told a little song about nine one one, press send because send you couldn't.
0: (laughs) I've never heard that old
1: cell phones. You couldn't call without pressing send.
0: Don't be a dope, press send.
1: <laughs> they didn't want those kids just pressing
0: 911. <laughs> Nothing happened. 911. Yeah, way to go, mom and dad. No wonder you died. You didn't tell me to <laughs> press send. You didn't tell send. me to press send after the call. <laughs> but yeah, I think kids
1: of our generation or people of our generation would have called 911 so fast, yeah. probably when they just saw somebody weird in the house, right. let alone eight hours later. We're not having friends come over and have a party before we call.
0: So based on the info that's been released, and I think this is very interesting too, we don't know a whole lot about the other surviving roommate, her actions, what she did at all that night. So uh, pretty much everything that we have from the affidavit comes from DM statement and everything that unfolded around the 911 call the morning after. So that'll be something I think will be interesting to see what kind of comes out about the other roommate if she speaks out i'm sure she probably obviously made statements to law enforcement they just weren't included but um going into the three kind of possibilities i think a lot of this is based on what dm said happened
1: yeah and just some important things to remember First of all, this was a huge party house. There are always lots of people coming, lots of people going. This is happening at all hours. So there was a rumor that DM was annoyed by the party noise that she thought she heard that was actually the killer's attack and thought that it was just her roommates who were up late, drunk, and being inconsiderate. So maybe she was just thinking, hey, it's just the noise of the party. Parties can get pretty rowdy, and it's nothing more than that. And there's a rumor that during one of the instances noted in the affidavit where DM went to her door, she apparently yelled out, keep it down, thinking the roommates were being noisy and not realizing what was happening. And as the killer exited the house, he was not concerned about DM seeing him in this theory, because she clearly thought he was just another noisy house guest, or he just didn't realize he saw that he was seen. And DM slept in the next day, which is normal for college students. So, yeah, people give DM a hard time for sleeping in the next day. But we have to remember this is very normal for college students. And she's up
0: at least until 4 a.m. Like... Yeah, so
1: she got her full eight hours of sleep. Yeah. And she didn't give the guy leaving the house a second thought in this theory and until she woke up and found the scene that she did. And after we go through the other possibilities here, we're going to discuss other people possibly who were on the scene when 911 was called
0: yeah which I think factors into kind of this whole scenario and what unfolded yeah
1: so theory number two kind of centers around the idea that this might have been drug related the whole not calling in any sort of short order and this is the first of two drug related rumors it's an unconfirmed statement we have that DM saw everything that she did, but that she was on drugs the night of the murders. And because of this, she couldn't determine if her experience or her perceptions were real or just hallucinations. So, while she was shocked and concerned, she convinced herself to sleep it off and reevaluated in the morning when she was clear-headed. And the next morning, she either must have seen the crime scene and realized that it wasn't a hallucination after all. Or she was too scared or unsure of her judgment, so she called some of her buddies to come over and confirm before she'd come out of her bedroom. So, I mean, I could I see this plausible. happening. Yeah. yeah, I think it's plausible. This was a big drug house, supposedly. This, right. These types of activities did go on. Um, so it's definitely a possibility that she would have thought, hey, there's no way this horrible scene really happened. I was on drugs last night. Let me just wait to sleep it off and everything will be brighter in the morning.
0: I think it also And not to be, like, I don't know, like, humorous about it or whatever, but, like, I think it could explain her shocked frozen state. Like, she's shocked she's frozen because she's on drugs, but, like, it also explains why if she's that frozen, the killer walked by. And I think... I don't even know if this... We mentioned this in the last episode, but I think it is interesting too. Um, A lot of people, there's so many models out there of the house, but apparently the little alcove vestibule area right off of the kitchen, that DM bedroom door is located um, off of, as well as the stairs going up to the third floor. They have this neon sign that says good vibes only or something like that. And apparently someone was kind of able to evaluate and speculate that The killer was going around the corner and the way that the light was coming off of the sign in that little area. It could have been very easy for him kind of to be blinded by that and the way he was turning to go out of the kitchen and the um, sliding glass door that he just didn't even see DM standing in the door and wouldn't have been able to just because of kind of like the lighting kind of blinding him on the turn.
1: It was a bright sign.
0: And so the the third kind of theory, and again, this is the second drug-related theory, and it kind of builds on and incorporates portions of the other theories. So whether DM realized the extent of the situation or not, and when she actually realized the gravity of the murders, it really doesn't matter. She realized police would have to be called and would comb through the house. So pretty much you know, it doesn't matter whether she realized at that time what was happening or whether she actually did go to sleep the next morning, wakes up and realizes, oh God, like this is a really bad murder, bad situation. Doesn't matter because she knows that police are going to have to be called. There's no covering this up or going on with life without police involvement. Being a major drug selling house, she wanted to have other people come over and help her remove all the drugs and just kind of clean up the scene, not the murder scene, but essentially like anything that could get them in trouble before calling 911. So I've heard this a lot too, and I don't know how much I believe it, but I, I guess I could see it that like you want to cover your own tail in the situation. And so you're calling whoever to kind of come over, help you clean it up and then call the police as soon as you have it all situated.
1: Yeah, I mean, this probably is the most cynical reasoning and jaded and to think that this person wouldn't be first and foremost concerned about her dead roommates and that her first thought is, oh my God, well, there's a crime scene here, which means the the cops are going to come. Yeah, let's hide the bong and the weed paraphernalia and make sure that it's all clear before anything comes back and gets me in trouble.
0: And I, I just can't imagine being like, let me call up my best friend and be like, hey, don't look to the left when you yes! come in. But I need you to, like, help me get the drugs out. Like, exactly. I just. Oh, my God. Oh,
1: exactly. Like, how do you avoid
0: that? Ugh. so some additional unconfirmed details, again, getting to into the 911 call the morning of. So first, we have the question of what caused surviving roommates to become concerned. So apparently because the house was so bloody when anybody came in they were just like hit by I guess like a cop what is it like a copper smell yeah um and I could I could totally see if you're in a location like it doesn't kind of hit you until you leave and come back so I could see the roommates not kind of realizing like coming out of their bedrooms and maybe the stench didn't hit them but just kind of how it was described I think that's kind of interesting or just kind of like a fact to keep in mind too that like i don't know that would have even probably woken them up or but i think you know it. it's questionable like if it's that overwhelming of, of a smell like would that not have alerted them when they woke up the next morning who knows who knows um so in addition to kind of some of the theories we just mentioned there are a couple theories about why the surviving roommates became concerned and this, I think, is kind of hinted to in the affidavit and will be interesting to see what comes out further. So the text messages and phone activities of the surviving roommates is referenced, but we really don't get a lot of details about what was said, what was taken off of whose phone, but we do know that all of the, all of the um, individuals in the house, their phones were obviously confiscated and reviewed. But I think the text between the surviving roommates specifically are going to shed some light on kind of what happened that night, or at least what they thought was happening. I also, and I know we referenced this last time, I'd be very interested to know if DM actually did go down to the other roommate, BF's room, and if so, at what point. When details about the surviving roommates first came out, it was stated that both of the girls were in the downstairs bedroom and or in the in the downstairs bedrooms and the one roommate got concerned went into the other roommates bedroom and they both kind of locked themselves in there for the night I think there probably is a bit of truth to that we know that DM was on the second floor but I think there probably is some truth to that at least based on how the affidavit was worded and I'd be interested to again know kind of when that happened why that happened etc there was another statement or kind of a, a belief that the surviving roommates, what kind of alerted them was they had texted the victims, you know, after especially DM after hearing kind of some of the things that were going on saying, are you okay? What's going on? And they never received answers from any of the roommates, which I think would be concerning. Like, you know, next morning you've texted three or four people and nobody texts back and nobody seems to be awake. Like, yeah, that, that definitely is concerning the next day. So another theory is let's just pretend that nobody, the surviving roommates had no idea what was going on the next day. Kind of building on the, like, maybe they texted them. Maybe they were trying to contact them. Nobody was moving. So they, so they went to one of the rooms to, you know, try to open it and be like, Hey, are you okay? It sounded kind of noisy here last night. And it's a possibility that when they went to open the door or tried to open it, one of the um, victim's bodies was against the door and they obviously weren't able to actually open it. So then they became concerned. And this also kind of plays into the theory that um, the unconscious person, which again, I truthfully believe it was probably just standard like verbiage that people are making a much bigger deal about. Um, But there is a theory out there that because they couldn't open the door, they then assumed that the person was unconscious, and then the 911 call was placed saying there's an unconscious person, we can't open the door, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So who knows, but I think a lot of it does make sense as a possibility.
1: The second group of unconfirmed details are about those people who are on the scene. And just as a reminder from last episode... Ethan, one of our victims, was a triplet and his brother and sister both attended University of Idaho and were involved in Greek life. So they lived close to the King Road house, which was located on Greek Row. And it was a belief that one of the friends who was on the scene before police arrived called Ethan's triplet brother. Which is
0: so sad. Like oh so
1: sad. And like, can you imagine getting that call? Can you imagine placing that call? Oh my gosh. So it's believed that the brother's car was the only car that did not belong to a resident or a victim at the house that was taken away from the scene by law enforcement. And the rumor here is that Ethan's best friend was among those. And, you know, this is beyond the roommates who were on the scene that morning before the police were called. Um, And there's a belief that this friend was the one to walk through the house and initially identify the victims with law oh enforcement. God. Which, imagine having that job like and being that person who's oh responsible God. for walking through and telling everybody okay, yeah, that's that's Ethan or that's Anna.
0: I'm glad though, I mean if this is true at least they kept the brother kind of out, out of, of it. There. Yeah, yeah. I was
1: thinking the same thing. Like that is something that cannot be unseen. Oh. But especially if it's a sibling. Yeah. So there are many other issues and possibilities here, like how many different people walked through and contaminated the crime scene before the police finally arrived. That's a whole issue too. Because I know. Who knows what was coming in and out, and especially with this house being such a hot spot for people, you know, constantly coming and going. It's like we don't really know what the contamination factor was and how many different people kind of walked through this crime scene before the police finally came.
0: Yeah. And and there was at least one um, piece of evidence in the affidavit was a shoe print, I believe, from a Vans shoe, if I'm remembering correctly. And just kind of taking this into consideration as a possibility you know, everybody initially is assuming, oh, this is great. This is a, a footprint from the killer. But if there were people coming and going beforehand and even set aside like the party thing like people actually walking through the crime scene after the crime happened that just opens up the possibilities you know and and makes it so much more difficult like I I don't think the killer was probably among the people that arrived initially they were probably friends of the victims or or the surviving roommates but you never know if they if they were in that crowd makes it a lot more difficult if they traipsed through the crime scene uh, before the police arrived that morning
1: so true so that is it for this week's episode. And next week, we're going to be delving into Brian Koberger. Who's he? Who could that be? Our number one suspect here. And we're going to just talk a little bit about Brian, how the cops came around to identifying Brian, and why we think he's definitely our guy in this yes. case. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment.